Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? Um, you know, Sunday morning is just a small part of Crossroads. It, it hopefully is a catalyst for what we just heard, um, what we all do throughout the week, living out the kingdom of heaven, uh, whether it's a church plant like Soma that's trying to stretch out and move out from a Sunday morning expression to uh, what we also just heard, uh, we gather in to go out. We get God so we can give God. And uh, great to be here uh, today after being away a little bit. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to uh, go to Israel and, and push discipleship into people. Um, God does just an amazing thing in that spot. Uh, there's nothing special about Israel um, but God does special things uh, in, that, in that space, so thank you. Okay, we are looking at the gospel for, for a season, and we're kind of a church that actually, if truth be known, our goal is to preach the gospel every time we preach. Um, it's something I need to preach to myself every day. It's the power of God to change and transform us and conform us into the image of, of, of his son, Jesus. One of the ways that we're doing this series, though, is we're looking at uh, the gospel through the metaphors or the images or the pictures uh, that God provides in his word. Uh, some of these images and, and pictures are, are profoundly powerful, and I think the one that we're going to look at this morning, uh, at least for me, is one of the most profound pictures of the gospel uh, in the text. So Exodus 17 is where we're going to be today. Yeah, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. How you doing, John? Good to see you, man. All right, we love to stand for the reading of God's Word, so uh, let's stand. It's found on page 58 if you have a Bible like mine. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And the Lord's shepherding them. He's leading them. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And the question is, who's in the cloud? Who's in the fire? They see his feet. Don't think Jesus just shows up in your New Testament. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? The people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses. Your text says, go in front of the people. It literally means pass through the people. Who did that (laughs) when they were going to stone him? Moses just passes right through them. Go do that first. And then take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff. That staff which you struck the Nile, when the Nile turned to blood, and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, 
strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Be seated. So anytime you uh, step into the narrative of the Bible, you have to know where you are in the story. So uh, the place where we are in the biblical story is God just liberated his people, Israel, from slavery, where they were slaves in Egypt. And he's brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea, and the place they are now is, is desert. It's the Sinai. In fact, I just was there a couple of weeks ago, and it still amazes me going there, uh, the intensity of, of that desert and hiking a, a group of people, getting them off a bus, and then all of a sudden going into this barren wilderness where it's intensely hot. I mean, it's unnerving, even for a group of people who have water strapped to their backs And all of that. So I want us to try to get into their shoes. I want us to see that they are in a place where you can't survive but a couple of days without water. And I want us to see what they're not complaining about. They're not complaining about how hot it is. They're not complaining about uh, being in a strange place or not knowing their future, they're complaining about the most basic need that if they don't get it, they're going to die. Now, desert itself in the Bible, yes, it's a place, but it too is a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a metaphor for life. When when life hurts, when life is difficult, when when life is hard, when, when it beats us up, when we find ourselves in that place of pain, and, and, and we feel helpless to do anything about it. Now, here's something I want you to consider. is In Deuteronomy 8, God says about Israel being in the desert, he says, I led you there for those 40 years. In other words, desert is not an accidental detour. Desert is a part of God's plan. God said, I led you there these 40 years in order to humble you and to test you. Because that's what deserts do. They humble us. And I'll speak for myself right now. Humility is not something that comes naturally to me. Humility is something that God has to push into me. And the thing that God uses is desert. God said, I led you there to humble you. I led you there to test you. The word test uh, means to expose because that's what our deserts do. They also expose. They expose our hearts. They, They let us and they let others see who we truly are. And sometimes that even can be ugly, but that too is a good thing. Keeps us from becoming fake and pretentious and hypocritical. But God said, I led you in the, in the desert to humble you and to test you and to make you hungry. 
That's God speaking. I mean, that almost sounds cruel. That God would lead his people into the desert to make them hungry and thirsty. In fact, that's exactly what's going on in our text. Why would God do such a thing? Well, Egypt in the story is also a place, but Egypt too is also a metaphor. It's what the word Egypt means. It means a place of bondage. I mean, oftentimes when, it's, when the Bible talks about Egypt, it describes it as a house of bondage. That's exactly what Egypt means in, in the original language. It's what Israel, it's what God's people become in Egypt. They become enslaved. And so God in, in the story gets them out of slavery, but really the bigger challenge is how do you get the slavery out of the people? And how does God get slavery out of us? Because we know what it means to be slaves. We know what it means to be a slave, whether it's to a relationship or a slave to a substance or a slave to a lifestyle, a slave to a job, a slave to performance, a slave to ourselves. How does God get us out of slavery? Desert. God says, I, I, I made you hungry so that you would learn, so that you would know that a person does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of my mouth. Or another way of putting it, I had to take all the sweet things of Egypt away from you so you could learn the sweetness of me and my word And I think I've lived enough life where normally I would just apply what I'm going to say next to just myself, but I think it applies to all of us. It's only when our other water sources dry up that we really drink God, or at least have the possibility to drink God. In Jeremiah 2, uh, God through Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And secondly, they, they drink only water from the wells that they have made, which are broken. And this, this, this verse so just sums up the entire human condition. This is just the human heart. I mean, the human heart has been made to drink God and to be satisfied in him. And yet, for some reason, we are always moving away from that to, to, to water sources that we create that are far less. We're always looking for substitutes, always looking for counterfeits. And that's why there's desert. And I want us to see uh, at least this part of the picture right now is, is this water that flows from a rock in the desert. That's where God gives us his living water, desert. And some of you are there right now, and I want to encourage you because God uses our deserts to give us the capacity to wean us off all these false, lesser, cheaper substitutes where hopefully our heart can discover what David said, oh God, you are my God, passionately I seek you. 
My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I want my heart to be able to pray that. And so God brings deserts. Now, the Jewish commentary on this text, in fact, it's in the Mishnah, which means the commentary actually predates Jesus. So this, this would have been uh, part of the thinking when, when, when Jesus read this text, what, what, how it would have been interpreted, um, that a river like that which flowed in the Garden of Eden came gushing out of the rock, and before it reached the people, divided into 12 gushing streams, a stream for each tribe. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? God's water from Eden flowing into the desert, making that desert Eden, one for each tribe for them to drink. I know where they get this, uh, Psalm uh, 77, I'm sorry, Psalm 78, verse 15, uh, God's, the, the psalmist says, out of, out of the rock came a, a river with the depths like the ocean, running and gushing. Psalm 105, verse 41, uh, says almost the same thing. It said, God opened the rock and water gushed out, it flowed like this gushing river in the desert. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. I wish we could just somehow get in their shoes to be in that moment. Because we're just reading the story right now, they're in the story. And see, they don't know that probably by the end of that day, a a river like Eden is going to be gushing towards them. They don't know that. They are swallowed up in the moment, and all they know, all they can see and feel is desert. And this desert has so swallowed them up in that reality that they think they're going to die. And part of the reason why I want us to see this is because I think that's what our deserts do to all of us, is they, they, they swallow us up and, and, and we get entangled in, in, in the weeds of, of, of whatever our desert is. And what we need to do when we're in the desert is we need to fight to be able to see, to get up high, to have a bird's eye view that our reality is more than just the desert we're in. And see, that's, that's why we need the Word of God, because the Word of God is, is the thing that, that gives our eyes sight so that when we're in a desert and, it, and, and we're just entangled in it and in the muck and the mire and it's all we can see, it's all we know, that we also know and see something more than that. Because what they don't know is what we know is that the deeper they go into this desert, 
the more profound is their experience gonna be of God to the point where every day man is gonna rain down from heaven, water's gonna gush from rocks, and the Lord is gonna be so profoundly present and with them. And that same God, who is the God of Israel in their desert, is the same God who is shepherding us, who is with us, who is guiding us in ours. That's why we need the word of God. Because in verse 2, we see that Israel loses sight of the, of the big picture, and it says they quarreled with Moses. Now, the word quarrel here literally means to put someone on trial. It means to put forth a charge. It, 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 it's a word that, that, that connotes a lawsuit. That's what they're doing right now. They're, they're, they're suing Moses. They're putting Moses on trial. Uh, his leadership and all of that, they're, it, it's, it's more than just in question. They want a trial, and Moses knows this. This is why he says to God, they're going to stone me. But here's where I want to ask this question. Is Moses to blame? Now, I'm not going to make Moses out to be a perfect person, but I'm going to tell you this. Uh, Moses is a guy who is doing everything he can to, to be faithful to God and to be faithful to what God has called him to be for God's people. And I know this, the Moses of our world can become very easy targets. Anyone who's in leadership understands you're an easy target, especially in our world of armchair quarterbacks. I mean, everybody today is an armchair quarterback pontificating on how to parent, how to do family, how to run a company how to run a church, how to run a country, and all the mudslinging that's going on today. First of all, to just blame someone else, to blame a Moses, does that in the end help? Can feel good. Actually, in the long run, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt drastically because the way things happen and the way things get healed is when we start taking responsibility for our lives and what we can do as opposed to just blaming everyone around us. Do you have a Moses in your life? Someone that you're just looking at and, and it's, it's all their fault. It's, it's, it's all my parents' fault for, for what I am today. It's all my coach's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my pastor's fault. I'll tell you where this thing goes. Because Moses, when you look at his response, he, he goes to God. It literally says he cries out to God. I can just hear, I, I, I've been there. <laughs> Those are desperate places where desperate cries come out of a leader's mouth. God, they're going to stone me. (laughs) 
And I love first thing out of God's mouth is, Moses, they're going to stone you. Walk right through the people. I want you to see I'm protecting you. I got your back. Second thing, Moses, get the elders. The elders are the representatives of God's people. They're the judges. I mean, the, the, the elders are Israel's supreme court. The reason God says get the elders is because there's going to be a trial. And then God says, take the staff. The staff that went into the Nile and turned it to blood. The staff that God used to unleash all the plagues. The staff that Moses raised and, and put down that part of the Red Sea. It's the staff that represents the little pinky of God. It represents his power. It represents the unleashment of his, of his judgment on Egypt. It's because Israel has brought this, this suit before Moses and God, and God says, that's fair. Uh, let's have a trial. And that's why God says, now, now go to Horeb. Horeb is a 12-minute, is a 12 12-mile 12 walk from Rephidim. And only because I've led groups out here, every time I, I, I go to Sinai with a group, I actually think about this particular story. I think, what, right, what would happen right now if I would just say, group, stay here. I'm going to go for a 12-mile hike uh, this way, and I'll be back. That wouldn't work. That would be, that would get me stoned. <laughs> but Moses does this. And then you have to ask yourself, why Horeb? Why can't it just happen there? Well, Horeb goes by a couple of names in the Bible. Sometimes Horeb is called the mountain of the Lord, but its, it's most common name is Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. This is, this is God's mountain. God is saying, come to my mountain. Come to my courtroom and bring your case before me. And when Moses gets there, God says something that should shock us. Because what God should say is he should say, uh, go to Horeb and, and stand before me there, but he doesn't. Instead, God says, Moses, go to Horeb and I will stand before you. Listen, in the Old Testament especially, God never ever stands before the people. The people always stand before him. Because in the ancient world, the weaker always stands before the stronger. A superior would never stand before an inferior. The one on trial is the one who stands before the judge. The judge doesn't stand before the accused. And that's exactly the point. God says, there's going to be a trial. Enter my courtroom. And then God, rather than being the judge sitting at his chair with the accused before him, says, uh-uh, that's not what's going on here. I'm the accused. 
they're not blaming you, Moses. They're quarreling with me. They're blaming me. Let me ask a question. Is God to blame? Look at our world. Is God to blame? How about your life right now? Is God to blame? I mean, when you look at this story and you look at everything that God has done for Israel, how he has rescued them from slavery, how he has parted the Red Sea, how he has shepherded them, how he has gone before them, how he is caring for them, how he drowned uh, their enemies, uh, the, the Egyptian army, all in the Red Sea. Is God to blame? What about your life? Is God to blame? Now here's where this story gets even more crazy. Not only does God not take the judge's seat, but he goes in the place of the accused and he stands there before Moses. Then God says, all right, Moses, take your staff. The staff that represents my power, my judgment, my finger, and I want you to hit the rock. I want you to smite it. Every commentator I've read on this all agree. Moses knows exactly what God is asking him to do. Take the staff, the power of my little pinky, and hit me. Smite me. And I bet Moses just like, God, I, I can't do that. Hit me, Moses. Smite me. And somehow, Moses got the courage to take the staff and smite the rock. And the moment he smites the rock, a river like Eden flows. And see, now I want us to get a, a bird's eye view of how this little story points us to the ultimate story because this is how God is going to deal with our desert world. It's how God is going to deal with your desert, my desert, how he's going to deal with sin, how he's going to deal with evil. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 makes the connection between this story and the ultimate story. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ. Hit the rock, Moses. 
And see, in, in, in this one picture of, of Christ, the smitten rock, we see how, how he's the rock that was crushed. He's the one who got off the judge's seat and he took our place in the accused. And God's staff, his divine judgment, came down and dealt him a death blow. I mean, the staff that turned the Nile into blood turns Christ into blood. So that out of that rock, the waters of Eden could flow into our desert. In fact, John's gospel wants to highlight this detail that when the soldier thrust the spear into Christ's side, not just blood flowed, but water flowed out of Christ's side. It's, it's the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. That's what that water is. It's the double cure. It saves me from all God's holy, furious love, his wrath against all sin. It saves me from that, and it also makes me pure. And I want us to get a little bit gutsy and, and, and think about what Israel actually deserved in this, in this situation or let's just move to our world right now. Like, what does our world deserve right now? Or let's make it even more personal than that. What do you deserve? What do I deserve? And through this picture, what we have is the judge of the universe saying, I'm going to stand in your place. I'm going to be the one judged. I'm going to be the one sentenced. I'm going to be the one executed so that you get to drink the waters of Eden. See, and this is where I want to go back to the beginning. It, it, it's why when we're in the desert, that the desert has the possibility of changing us, not just because it starves our hearts from Egypt and gets us hopefully to eat and drink God, um, but... It's not just the desert, but it's the rock that's in the desert that we need. And it's the water from that rock that we need to drink. Because if our eyes can see this picture, and we can drink this water in, if we can plug this reality deep into our heart, that Christ took our place, that he stood in our place as the accused, that he's the one who took the blows for us, this will change you from the inside out. It will. It's the gospel. In fact, I'll end with, with, with four ways that, that this can change anyone from the inside out. Number one, if you see Christ standing in your place in this way, you will stop blaming God. You will start to see that God is not the problem, that God is the solution. 
and you'll stop thinking and wondering, like, why isn't God doing anything about all the sin and the evil in our world? Are you kidding me? He entered our world. He suffered like no one else, and he became sin and evil. In fact, he destroyed sin and evil without destroying us. I think it was in the 30s when, when, when things were all crazy with, with, with Nazi Germany and all that. There was this whole editorial section in the London Times where people were addressing the question, what's wrong with the world? And they were writing these long, elaborate, philosophical essays to explain what's wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, one of the great writers and thinkers of that time, wrote his essay. It was two words. I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. The gospel gives us the capacity to not blame parents, to not blame coaches, to not blame pastors, but where we can start taking responsibility upon ourselves. I'm what's wrong. Second thing, if we see Christ standing in our place where the superior becomes the inferior, where the ultimate, the ultimate God takes the place of the weak, tell me, how can we take our sin lightly? If the God of the universe went, went to this extent as judge to being the accused and executed for us because of our sin, your sin, my sin. And see, when we see this, and then we add to this... <laughs> that we have such a rock-solid place to bring our guilt and our sin. I mean, it gives us the capacity to get gutsy with our sin, to get gutsy with our guilt, to acknowledge it, to own it, to not hide it or pretend that it doesn't exist or to think that we're a lot better than we really are. We have an incredible place where we can just take all of our sin, all of our guilt, and it can be dealt with. That's a freeing thing. Thirdly, if we see Christ standing in our place, how dare we then stand in judgment of other people? Why is it that Christians today have become some of the most judgmental and critical people on the face of the earth? When I see Christ standing in my place where he becomes the accused for me and the one who is uh, executed uh, in, in, instead of me, that destroys all self-righteousness. 
Because I start to realize that my standing in God is, is not because I'm so good, it's because he's so good. That it's not my righteousness, it's not my performance, it's his righteousness. It's his beautiful, perfect, glorious performance. And I'm hidden in that. That's life-changing. If we see Jesus Christ standing in our place in the way that he did, how can we not forgive people who have wronged us? I mean, this is what gives us this this life-changing reality, this life-changing capacity that that when we see Jesus literally taking the blow that that we deserve, literally those those nails in his hands, hanging on that cross, drinking the cup of of, of God's wrath, and, and all of that saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the power that comes into our life that now gives us the capacity and the ability to forgive those who have hurt us, wounded us. Because here's the deal. If we forgive, we're going to be healed. But if we don't forgive, unforgiveness will destroy us. It'll be a poison. And some of you, and I'm going to end with this point right now, some of you are in a place, and I've been in the same place as well, and I still can go to this place, where, where, where we just can't forgive ourselves, where we're constantly beating ourselves up, where we're, we're walking around saying, like, I'm not that good, I'm not that capable, I'm not that smart, all these different things, and we're kind of have these standards of perfection that we've placed on ourselves that constantly cause us to beat ourselves up every time we don't meet those standards. Do you know there's only one person who can judge you? And it's not even you. It's, it's not other people. It's Christ. And it's all settled. It's done It was all taken to the cross where he stood in our place and he took our judgment. See, this is why Paul can say these words in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's because the Lord is the one who judges me. In in other words, what Paul is saying And I don't think he's saying this in a cocky way, but he's like, I don't care what you guys think. I don't care what any human court thinks. I don't even care what I think. He says, because my conscience is, is clear, but he says, even that doesn't make me innocent. What makes me innocent is that the one who has the right to judge me, I already know his verdict. In Christ, my judgment day is past. The verdict is in, and he loves me. He forgives me. He accepts me. He delights in me. That's the gospel. Therefore, says Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nothing present, nor future, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. That's how we're not just redeemed from slavery, but how God gets the slavery out of us. Let's pray. God, just open our eyes to see this amazing picture of a rock being smitten and life-giving water flowing into desert and into the desert of our lives. And that rock smitten was you, Christ. And before the foundations of the world, you knew that your world would grow evil and sinful. And you knew that this is the way that you would deal with it. God, may we surrender to you and to your love. And may your life-giving streams flow in us and out of us. In Jesus' name. In the desert in Israel, there's a, there's a sea called the Dead Sea. It's, it's dead. And the reason it's dead is because water flows in it, but water doesn't flow out of it. We can't just drink this water and not have it flow out of us. See, a king will reign in righteousness. That's Messiah. And rulers will rule with justice. That's us, his followers. We have authority. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm. Each one will be like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. So let's go. Let's go from this place and let as Christ's water flows in us, may it flow out of us, God, to our neighbors, to the people we work with, to the people we live with, our family, spouses. And God, because your word says that you're near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit, God, you're just drawn to that. God, may our lives, like you, be drawn to the crushed and the brokenhearted. Thank you, Lord, for the life you've given us. God, give us the grace and the means to pour that life into those around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, you guys.